Welcome back to The Resilient Responder, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of our first responder and military communities. Here we talk about the job, mental wellness and resiliency, coaching, family, and living our best lives. Now, once again, here is your host, Keith Hanks. And welcome back to another episode of the Resilient Responder podcast, where we talk about everything that impacts the resilience of today's first responders. My name is Don Pemberton. I'm a 22-year veteran of fire and emergency services, and today I have two wonderful guests with me. I have Aaron and Kathleen. Ladies, would you like to say hi? Good morning. Hello, thanks for having us. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much. So Aaron and I worked together back about a dozen years ago in the city of Alameda, where I was a firefighter and Aaron was in disaster preparedness. And today our discussion is going to be a little bit different. Uh, When we think of first responders and we think of the work that they do, we think about that immediate acute element of someone has suddenly had a medical event, whether it's a car crash or a breathing problem, the heart suddenly stops. And that's when first responders run into action. And that's what we're trained for. And we have the equipment, the protocols, the tools to be able to try to create the best outcome possible. But what about in those situations where a person is later on in that stage of life, where all the efforts to assist and sustain their life have kind of come and gone And now we're left with a very, very, uh, you know, recognizable stage of life where they need less of the equipment that we bring with us and more of our souls. And I think that is a very important discussion. And I want to give both Aaron and Kathleen an opportunity to introduce themselves. We'll start the conversation. And then I want to share a couple stories about what I just experienced within the last 72 hours as it relates to this topic. So Aaron, since you're my friend, you get to go first. And so Aaron, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, what your uh, experience in emergency services is and what you're doing now. Great. Um, Like you said, we met in Alameda. Uh, I worked in disaster prep for several years, um, and then the last couple of years at the city of Alameda, I uh, started a senior safety program, and it was the senior uh, fall and fire safety uh, because they're the highest call volume, and we were going through a time of um, of economic downturn, and the fire service was trying to find ways. We were the fire service was being cut down a bit, and we were trying to find ways to mitigate that problem. Uh, with the call volume. So we started the fire, uh, the senior safety program. That was my first um, real dive into working with seniors. Uh, I was really actually shocked at, um, at how many people actually don't have families and don't have people looking after them. And um, some of the places that I, that uh, the homes that I visited were, um, you know, they were at the end of their lives and uh, like really at the end, not, not still enjoying life. Yes. And um, so uh, I'm currently now in senior living. I'm a marketing director for Aegis Living, um, and my passion is actually helping seniors and the most vulnerable population. And um, so I I do experience uh, quite a bit of death, end of end of life death, not as much much not emergency death, um, more expected. And um, found that it's uh, there's a lot that that can be enhanced in that process. 
uh, for the betterment of the person. We're, we're all going to die. Mm-hmm. Every single one of us, we don't escape that. Yes. It would just, um, now at this point, 80% of people who pass away, pass away in the hospital. Right. And so. Um, and, and probably alone. Yes, unfortunately, and hooked up to all sorts of stuff. And um, so, but we're, uh, there's a real movement now for death doulas. Uh, just like birth doulas. I just actually heard of it the first time last year. And so it's kind of new to me too. And I was very interested in it because um, I've spent a lot of time with people as they passed. And uh, and so it was really something that was heartfelt to me, something that uh, I just went through death doula training. And um, during that training, I literally wrote on my notes, uh, fire department. Uh, because I thought right away, this is something that the fire service needs and would benefit from um, for the calls that they go on, especially people who are at end of life, but also for your fellow firefighters. Um, I know that uh, through experience at working at the fire department, um, it was very uh, definitely emotionally touching and something that sat with me. Uh, a firefighter, one of our captains passed away at a young age and he had cancer, um, a young family. It was heartbreaking. Um, but what was really phenomenal was the firefighters and the fire department, their response to that family and um, being with them and literally parking themselves outside if they weren't wanted inside the house. They took the kids to school, they went shopping, they did, they did they cooked meals, they did everything. And um, so I thought, you guys, this would be such good training for you because it could really enhance that end of life experience for that family and your fellow brother or sister, um, making it the best possible because nobody is taught to talk about death. Um, you're always taught, especially in you know medical situations, you're taught to save right. and you're taught to, um, to fix it. So there is no fixing someone passing, but there's there is a way to do it with dignity and respect, yes. and honoring that person and their family. And so I thought um, right away this would just be an awesome uh, opportunity for firefighters to be more in tune with the families and their brother or sister, and um, be more confident and comfortable in the conversations that they have with them. Yes, yes. No, you just mentioned dignity, respect, and honor. And those are definitely things that the fire service stands for. And I think sometimes we miss the ball on some of these, um, you know, uh, less flashy, less, uh, you know, impressive events that are out there when we still have an opportunity to make a really, really positive impact in the individual's life. Thank you. Thank you so very much. And Kathleen, uh, why don't you go ahead and tell me a little bit about yourself and what brings you on today? Yeah, thank you. Well, I just feel fortunate to have met Erin. I am one of the trainers at the Gentle Passage Doula Collective to become a, a doula train doula, an end of life doula. And my background is in nutrition. And I started out in long term care, so with the elderly and really being an advocate for people to eat whatever they want at the end of life and not be on these restrictive. Um, diets at the time. And it was really a, a huge shift from what I had been trained for again in school, but just really seeing um, what's most important at the end of life. And food is one of those last things that is connecting and so important for people. Right. And then I did work in acute care and then mostly in private practice. 
and really always had my ear to the ground with the bigger problem of grief and loss that people were having. When they came to see me, um, I worked a lot with disordered eating, um, addictive behaviors, and diagnoses, right? And so grief and loss, I was doing a lot of that work all along because people always wonder, how did you end up working so much in trauma, grief, loss, and death? And then alongside, you have your personal life that's going on. And I experienced a lot of um, death in my family. And one most precious to me is um, my father-in-law, who was battling cancer for a long time and wanted to get out of the hospital. And I remember the day we brought him home into our home. It was snowing here in Seattle and you just don't drive in Seattle when it's snowing. Um, you guys probably get lots of calls when people are driving in the snow here. Yep. And getting him before the weekend started because he wanted to come home and then being really the advocate for him not to go back into acute care. He just did not want beepers, buzzers, all that kind of thing. And he ended up living with us for six months, wow. him and his wife. And I had a six-year-old daughter and just going through the process together, seeing how beautiful it was. There was not death doulas, but that's what our family was doing mm -hmm. and really wishing that all the deaths that I had seen were like that. And then it was this one time that I was working as a coach, just really pushing the health and living longer and being stronger with an uh, you know 83-year-old woman who said to me, Kathleen, you know, this isn't helping me at all. You, you can't help me. And at the time, I was trying to help her with eating in the morning because she was so down because she had lost her husband. Mm -hmm. And she said, we need help learning how to die. And I remember just completely dropping my agenda and saying, you're absolutely right. Tell me about your husband. Tell me what you need. And my dad had just passed. So it was that was also reinforcing that he had died and thinking, you know, I really don't want to do this anymore. Push an agenda on someone else because, again, that doesn't bring people dignity, respect, honor, and it can be traumatizing, right? Right. But I finally had somebody say those words to me under those circumstances. And that's when I sought out training and other people, other like-minded people, because what starts happening is when you start talking about this, you're alone. Nobody wants to talk about death and dying. Nobody wants to talk about these things because it brings up all this pain, right? Of your own losses and your own grief. Right. And so I became a certified end of life grief coach and end of life death doula. And I'm part of a collective that we kept getting asked to train. We resisted. We were like, we're not going to be trainers. We're going to be death doulas. We're going to go. And finally we were like, we really do need to train people. That's the calling. That's what the community wants. And so we just launched uh, this year with our training program. So that's, thank you so much for having us. Yes, yes. No, that sounds awesome. And that's actually, uh, so So I became a life coach last year and my focus has been uh, focusing on first responders. And uh, the sponsor of the podcast is First Responder Coaching. And one of the first things they tell you when you become a coach is to not show up in the coaching session with an agenda and, you know, maintaining those kind of emotional boundaries, not jumping in the emotional pool, all that kind of stuff. And so 
I can definitely relate to those elements of what you're talking about and how that relates to first responders. And so, um, so Aaron reached out to me last week and I had the opportunity to ask a couple of my coworkers, have you ever heard of a death doula? And of course, immediately you get the stare, the the puzzled, you know, you know, look of like, I've heard those two words apart, but I've never heard those together. So immediately what everyone does is they Google, you know, what is a death doula, an end of life doula? And as soon as they get the general parameters, they're like, I get it. Like I have been on hundreds, if not thousands of calls where the the individual that is there in the chair in the bed it's not the person that was there for the last 60 70 80 90 years of their life they're just a shell of that individual and ever since i spoke with aaron i had three calls in particular we had two um known cardiac arrests that we were going to the person had passed away in their sleep or overnight and i just thought like hey like we're going to do what we normally do. We're going to show up. We're going to check to make sure they're in, you know, flat, flat line. We're going to provide whatever, you know, support we can to the family, but we're just kind of making it up. And we don't have any real good guidance or tools, of course, of like when we decide that that individual has met our medical criteria to not be worked, to not be transported. And, uh, you know, which kind of like, you know, sorry for your loss, anything we can do you know, have a good day. And then um, the very, the last call we had was very, very touching because the the situation that you described with uh, your father-in-law is very similar to the experience that we had with my wife's grandmother. And she basically stayed in a nursing home on or uh, in a nursing home bed in the, the hospital bed at home for, I want to say almost a year. And she had uh, been placed on hospice, had a terminal diagnosis, and she lasted a whole year. And you ask yourself that question, why is it that their body isn't willing to let go? Why is it that they can't kind of gracefully go on into what comes next? And it was so interesting when we, in the moment, you're you're kind of uh, wrapped in grief and you have question after question after question. And then when you get a little bit separated from that, you look back, you're like, you know, had she passed away when she was first placed on hospice, she would have never got to meet her granddaughters. She would have never had those those opportunities to have those conversations. And so certainly I can see the difference between, um, you know, supporting that individual, providing them the nutrients and what they need to to be good. But, you know, also at that same time, you know, trying to wrap your head around that question of why are they sticking around so long and just fighting and fighting and fighting. And so, so real quickly, the, the call that we had was uh, a woman was in an end of life stage. Uh, she was on hospice on oxygen. She wasn't aware of her surroundings and the family had gotten a new arrow bed. And so they had called 911 to have us assist and move her from the traditional hospital bed over to the air-based hospital bed in their home because they were not strong enough to do it. And so we must have spent maybe a half hour, 45 minutes, and we knew the family. We had run that uh, at that house maybe seven to 10 times over the last six months. And so it was a really, really wonderful opportunity for us to be of service, even though we weren't providing 
oxygen or IVs or advanced airway or CPR. We were we were meeting their needs where they were and we provided them that dignity and we did it with honor. And we shifted her from one bed over to the other and we were very uh, engaged with the family. And it was just, you know, it's it wasn't a high-speed call, but it was still, when I look back over the last couple of calls that I've run, you know, last month or so, it's my favorite one. It wasn't a high speed call, but it was for that family. Yes, absolutely. That absolutely. was huge. So, so well, thank you all both so much. So, so let's just move forward with with our discussion. And what do you think? I, I'll open this up to the to the both of you. What do you think is lacking in awareness of first responders as it comes to those end of life? episodes with those individuals who may or may not be on hospice care or but are definitely in those final stages of life that aren't looking for those emergence life-saving measures but they are looking for services and support i would say um time they're looking for time they're looking for uh when you when you're called like like to move somebody from their hospital bed to a different to a different bed um it's taking little t little bits of time to have a conversation while you're there you know asking them if they need any other resources what can they do is there somebody you can call um because hospice has great resources too and too many people wait till the end way too long to go yes. on hospice i mean you can graduate from hospice as many times as you want my dad graduated six times like mm -hmm. That's fine. They they it's but it's such a good benefit for things that they bring to you to your home. Um, that maybe having those conversations, like have you been able to talk with your doctor and, and being um brave. I mean, you guys are the bravest of brave, but having brave conversations is something different. They're um they're hard and uncomfortable. Uh, but the other person does need it and um and they welcome it. Uh, as uncomfortable as it is, it's welcoming too wonderful. Yeah, I'm going to reinforce what you said. What we all need is we all need to be seen, heard, and understood. And so to be able to take that extra breath and ask them what's most important to you, what is it that you need, and to be resourceful, but to feel cared about, I think. And also, I uh, was telling Aaron that just in this last year, someone called 911 for me. I had a syncope episode, eating dinner, fell on the floor, a bunch of firemen showed up. Um, and what- We're not I invited. <laughs> yeah, exactly, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I think what struck me was a real important thing that really eased me was my blood pressure just would not go back up, would not go back up. So uh, is finally, they said to me, you know, I can't make you go to the hospital. But if you were, you know, someone I knew, I would want you to go and just get this checked out. And that just like went, oh, you know, I can totally trust that. And it was just that extra, you know, movement from all this assessment to, you know what, <laughs> that's what I would, that's what I would recommend. And I think kind of it, what it did is it humanized, it moved from being an expert into being a human. And I think that's what we're talking about, about dropping the agenda, taking off my hat as this person and just opening up my heart to say, hey, I care about you. I hear you. Let's talk about death. And I think 
it's counter to what your agenda is when you show up. And so I think it's wrapping our minds around that these discussions, like Aaron said, are welcome. But like, what am I facing? If I go to the hospital, what are they going to do? You know, so that when we're talking about someone who's older and has a diagnosis and you get that information that they're terminal and that they're receiving hospice care or that they're not, that you could be a resource in another uh, another place to be able to be seen, heard and understood and cared about. Because in the end, what we want to feel is cared about by somebody. And I think, you know, what you just described, moving someone from one bed to the next is you have extended yourself to that. You're, you're doulas. You're doing what a doula would want done, you know? Yes. Excellent. Um, and, and so I think maybe uh, we could take a moment right now and maybe talk, maybe describe for, for someone that doesn't have an experience with the uh, hospice system or what value hospice brings, because I think there's a an immediate stigma or a negative connotation associated with that. And so many times they say, but I, I want my loved one to eat. They can't go on hospice or I want them to still get their medications. If they go on hospice, they can't have their medications. And we, we take that opportunity to educate families and individuals about the services that actually hospice, hospice can provide. So would either of you like to take a moment and kind of give a 60,000 foot view of what being in that hospice system actually means? Um, extra support. Uh, and, and you do still get to eat and have medication on hospice. Uh, they're not going, it's not as much going to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as much, uh, interventions you can have. It depends on like, you know, if you have, if you get pneumonia, there's a conversation. Mm-hmm. Do you want to be treated? Do you want comfort measures? Um, so there's, you know, you, there's a lot that hospice offers besides that they'll bring in home health to your, to your home and help you with bathing a couple times a week. They'll bring a massage therapist. They bring a music therapy. They bring in animal therapy. Um, all sorts of different uh, art therapy, all sorts of different options to help you kind of cope with what you're going through and your family with what you're going through. Um, they have counseling services. They have religious services, all at the, their drop of their hat. They, they can just call all sorts of resources in. Um, and unfortunately, people think it's just for the last days. It's not. It's for the last, like if you have a terminal illness that they say about a six month time frame, you're, you're available for hospice. You can graduate all you want. Graduate, go on it. Just use the, the services are free for you. Um, and it's, and it's paid by Medicare. So it's, it's worth it. Just use it. Um, uh, just, but having that conversation, so it's not as scary, um, that you don't, it's people wait generally to like the last seven days. Mm-hmm. They had, you know, six months worth of benefits that they could have used in their families and their homes, but they, they wait to the very, very end. Um, so it's just, it helps them um, get through with dignity. Um, and, and not all hospices are great. You know, that's going to be known as well. But um, it's certainly a benefit for the patients and their families. Yeah, I'll just chime in and say it's just as much for your family as it is the person. And um And also, this is where hospice, you know, is being taxed. Uh, We had a family member who needed hospice, and the wait was two and a half weeks up here in the Pacific Northwest. And that's where end-of-life doulas can really step in and support. 
The other thing I want to put a shout out to, I think, again, the conversations, having the conversations and normalizing conversations that we're all going to die and it's a sacred rite of passage and how do you want that to have happen and think about it while we're healthy and well is a really good idea and something that we really want to have happen as end-of-life doulas. But also to know that there's palliative care, which is comfort care, that sometimes it's easier on the ears when there's so much denial about death and dying, that comfort care measures can be put into place too. So I think that's something that um, I know that uh, I, I've worked with families that somehow that feels like step one. <laughs> uh, that can that again, it's it's like what Aaron's saying, another set. So there's less hospitalizations and less, you know. Uh, Hopefully, less, less emergency calls as well. Yes, because yes. they have more education about um, about when to call and when not to call. And you also want to think about time. I mean, you guys are on time. So you, you don't want, when you're thinking about it from a business point of view as well, because you need to, um, you don't, you can't just spend an hour with somebody on a call uh, mm -hmm. talking with them. Right. But in that, in a shorter amount of time, you can have a more, um, a more detailed conversation with some better talking points and then get resources to them. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that would be, I think, um, really important for the fire service to have shorter talk, talking tracks to be able to talk with these uh, respond, who you're responding to, but also to to be able to bring it in in a time frame that you guys can work with. Yes. Yeah. No, one of the things that we strive to achieve in our coaching company is that we recognize that our current medical mental professionals are also being overtaxed and the resources especially those that are culturally compliant or uh, culturally um, aware of what it means to be a first responder and all of those things are are very few and it's hard to get those and so we think of coaching as bridging that gap in between that local peer support team and those professionals because we have a little bit more training we have a little bit more awareness and we've got a lot of practice and i see these end of life doulas almost in that exact same realm where yeah. you have your uh your um your hospice professionals, those resources that are out there. And then you've got the family. And in between there, there's a huge gap. And utilizing the knowledge, the resources, and the the skills that the these doulas have to be able to provide support at this critical stage of life is, is, is incredible. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. We're going to have a word from our sponsor, First Responder Coaching. And we're going to pick up this conversation uh, on the other side of the commercial. Sounds good. Perfect. Let's Coaching is here now for all first responders and their families. When it comes to the job and the stresses that come with it, we at First Responder Coaching know exactly how it can affect every aspect of your life and the lives of those around you. That's because we are first responders and their families. First responders are well-versed in reacting to a situation. It is literally what we do as firefighters, law enforcement, dispatch, and EMS personnel. When trauma enters our lives, we react to it by tucking it down away somewhere in our minds, but we carry it with us and never really goes away. We need to stop carrying trauma into every aspect of our personal and professional lives. It's time to start having proactive, powerful conversations right now to gain a better balance in the responders' whole life. This is true for their families, especially the spouses. 
Take that first step in making some of the most important improvements in your life. Visit www.1strespondercoaching.org now to make an appointment to chat with FRC. A coach will reach out, and before you know it, you'll be on your way to living a proactively fit lifestyle. And welcome back to the Resilient Responder Podcast. We are having an amazing conversation about those last stages of life with my two amazing guests and the concept of the death doula and those end of life support systems that are out there. And so the uh, question that I want to lead off with with our guests is what does it mean to be a resilient responder? And clearly in the context of this discussion, we're talking about responding to those individuals in a different stage of life than most first responders would be used to. But it still requires a great amount of resilience to be able to provide those supports. So those supports, we talked about uh, dignity, honor, and respect, and I love those words because they resonate with me so well. So, so Aaron, what does it mean to you to be a resilient responder when it comes to uh, this stage in a human's life? Um, I want to first start out with that by saying taking care of yourself. So that you are present and can um, and hear and you can um, attend to somebody in a different stage than you're normally attending to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that um, you know asking why, asking open-ended questions is really important when you're responding to a call um, in this nature. Uh, I think that. Um, just having some talking tracks is really important when you're responding, um, opening some conversations. And there's and there's also just a little bit different. There's a different from you responding on a call versus you spending time with um, somebody, you know, one of your brothers or sisters um, at their end of life, which is going to be a lot different than going on a call because then you will be spending the time and you're going to not going to rush it and you're not going to be thinking you got to get out to the back to the station. Um, so I think that being present is going to be huge. Um, being present for for that each of those different situations is going to be is going to look different also. Um, so being able and you guys are so great at reading a room and uh, reading a situation. So you've got a lot of intuition going for you. Um, that's pretty natural. Uh, the hard part is just the conversation. So being resilient and being brave and um, and being able to to have these conversations that are that are uncomfortable with strangers, mm-hmm. which is actually easier than with your friends, much yes. easier than with your friends, and um, and and with your friends' kids and with their families and their spouses, um, because you're emotionally attached to them. You have skin in the game more than you're responding than if you're responding on a call. So um, being resilient, I think, is is um, first and foremost taking care of yourself so that you can be there. Uh, present in these conversations because they're so important for end of life and and um, knowing that you don't always get it right and that's okay and 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 accepting that that um, you can say something you think might be right and they maybe not react how you would have thought they would have reacted and that's okay you can always um, say hey I'm I apologize I uh, I didn't mean it to come across that way. This is what I what, this is what I was thinking. Or you know, you can always turn it, own it, though, and then turn it. 
Um, so I just think being able to um, have these tools in your shed, but your shed is in your head. Right. <laughs> so that's what I think is really important for a resilient responder. Thank you. Hmm. Yeah, I'll just add to uh, what Aaron's saying. I think, um, you know, I love the question, what is your understanding of your situation, your diagnosis, your situation right now? What's most important to you right now is a nice uh, talking track. Uh, what is it that you wish we could do, want to have done? What do you need immediately? And you, again, you're doing the assessment. You can see maybe needs that aren't being spoken um, that you could be resourceful for. And I would also um, say uh, what Aaron said with self-care, here's the thing about self-care is we have to practice. If we're going to change our habits of being a first responder or an expert, you know, in my in my case, you know, being the person who has the answers to make things feel better so that we can feel of value, it's really practicing uh, showing up and having these conversations and being of value in a different way than saving someone's life. So I think uh, we have to practice that. And I would recommend practicing these conversations at home and, you know, uh, <laughs> first responders aren't alone. The rest of the world doesn't really want to talk about death and dying, but it's going to happen. And so we have to practice those conversations so it becomes habitual. So it becomes part of what we routinely do. So we can start at home and we can start having that. But the practice is really important. The practice of being able to be present is really important. I run a group in my private practice totally about being able to ground and center. And everyone says, why don't I do this more? Why don't I do this more? <laughs> you know, and it's because we don't practice and it's not something that's valued like exercise and nutrition and waking up at a certain time and going to bed at a certain time. So I wanna spread the idea of self-care out a little bit more. The other thing that I think is so important is when you come home and you're done with work is to have fun. You know, end of life doulas are in love with life. We're not in love with death. We're in love with life. We, it, it, death informs us about how we want to live our life. And so allow it to inform you and allow yourself to have fun. I've even had this, you know, it's really funny. I don't know if you run into this as a coach where you're like saying something and you're like, hello, I have the lesson in my own life right now. So paralleling this, my daughter's home from school from college for a few days. And it's like, our whole focus is how, how can we make the most out of these days? How can we have the most fun before she has to go back to school? And I'm like, why aren't we doing this all the time? Right. <laughs> you right. know? So yes. I think that self-care is, is really um, being able to not have your life all be about your work, but how else can you have fun and feel like that you're off? I think that's really important with self-care. Yes. Yeah, and no. I think that for responding, um, you guys are constantly in emergent mode mm -hmm. um, and you're in reactive mode because you're reacting to an emergency. So this is one of, this is a situation where you not to be in reactive mode. Mm -hmm. This is a situation to be in proactive in your head. So you kind of have thought about um, different ways and uh, to communicate um, and hear and, um, and let them feel heard and, and touched um, emotionally as well. Uh, so it's totally different than coming in there. You're going to fix somebody. It's a, it's a different mindset. Um, so being able to have that in your toolbox 
that different being able to switch to a different mindset um, and knowing how to do that is really important. Yes, yes, vitally important. And, you know, just touching on one of the topics that we touched on, as far as uh, being present and grounding, one of the calls that we run very, very frequently is anxiety and panic attacks. And, you know, when everyone has their own approach to it, and one of the things through my coaching practice is that I have taught the person how to take their own pulse in that moment of anxiety, in that moment of panic. And I say, okay, you need to feel your own pulse. And so they feel their own pulse. And now I need you to use that to count out your breaths. So for every heartbeat, maybe six heartbeats, 10 heartbeats, five heartbeats, whatever it is, you're going to inhale, you're going to hold it. And then when you count six more, 10 more heartbeats, you're going to exhale. And I want you to feel your own pulse and then use that to track your own breathing. And what that does is that requires so much mental capacity to tactilely feel your pulse, to mentally count that, and then count that out, that whatever it was that was causing to have that panic attack and that overwhelm of emotion is now just set on that back burner just just for a moment. And in that split second, they recognize how much control they have over their physiological body just in that moment. And now I don't pretend to be able to solve their problems. I don't pretend to be able to have the answers to what it is that caused them to be uh, anxious or that panic attack in the first place. But what I can do is I can give them a tool to be able to manage it more efficiently and to have that those those physiological capacities to be able to move forward and manage what we're talking about in the here and now. And I think that's very, very important. And uh, one of the conversations we were having before we hit record earlier was about the generational differences between the way that which we approach these these types of, of challenges, whether it be that first responder themselves or that individual. And we talked about a little bit about how the, the newer generation is so much more willing to share their information. I mean, if you want to know anything about them, you check their Instagram, Snapchat, whatever it is, you're going to see a, a rolling uh, vomit of everything that they've experienced you know, for the last five years. Um, what, what has been your guys' experience with the way that uh, individuals, either responders or the people receiving care have kind of uh, gravitated towards or away from that concept of that end of life doula or services that you're uh, providing? Kathleen, I'll let you take that one. Okay, you got it. Um, you know, surprisingly well, I would say that the younger generation is advocating for their loved ones, like wanting to know everything that they can do and talking about what's messy, even if the person dying is not. Um, And that there is a natural expectation to, A, they know it's normal, they don't want to be alone, and that they expect kindness. You know, there is this kind of, uh, well, you said you were an end of life doula, so I'm going to be able to just say whatever. And also, uh, I think that the younger generation wants to see, I think they see the problem. I think that they're seeing their parents in uh, the sandwich generation, you know, and they're seeing the struggles. 
and they're wanting to be of service. And it makes sense for uh, them to be a part of this movement to move death and dying when it can from being a medical event to being a community event, which is really, um, and bringing back people into the home and um, bringing ease, peace and comfort um, around death and dying. And there's not as much of a fear, I think, because uh, death and dying has been talked about so much in the younger generations because of the reality of school shootings. You know, it's a common thing that you have to talk about. And the thing that I love the most about it, uh, you know, and again, I have a 19 year old, is the shame and stigma around being able to talk about mental health issues is is not huge. So we can say that there's this vomiting and you're letting everyone know is, is there's also not this shame and stigma that I would say generations past has had and that there is tools and there are ways to, uh, to intervene that are helpful. And there's a huge belief that yes, sitting by the side doing non-medical intervention brings ease and comfort and that you don't have to convince the younger generations about that. So it's kind of a, a beautiful thing where being stoic and being, you know, taking care of yourself and not complaining in generations past, uh, you can see that there's been pain and suffering as a result by not reaching out for help in the end. And when somebody dies in a painful, long process or not ideally because they did not accept care, that impacts all the grievers. It makes grief a lot longer and a lot more difficult. So as a grief coach, I feel really strongly <laughs> about trying to advocate for people to have at least to have those conversations, say what you need to say, let people know that you love them, especially the important topics about, I love you, I forgive you, thank you, and goodbye, you can go, you don't have to stick around for us, you know, giving people permission to die, that you're going to be okay. Yes. Aaron, did you want to chime in at all? Yeah, I just, um, the younger generation, uh, God bless them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they have, they've got such uh, there's such benefits as well as to to being more open to uh, care and uh, mental health care, actually, and um, including in the death and dying and the grieving process. Uh, but and they are they are more desensitized as well um, because of their experiences growing up were different. Um, it's a much different world than it is than it used to be, and um, and so it's. I think the younger generation is is easier to to talk about death and death doula and end of life. Now the, the older generation is um, they're not wanting to. The people in senior living homes are not wanting to. The people who are um, who are you know seventy and above really don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, and their children, you know, in their fifties, aren't that great about it either. <laughs> so it's really um, there's there's a big difference in the age uh, of grieving. There's a, a way different way that we deal with it. And also the, um, the comfortableness about talking about it. And so when you guys are responding or with some families, you also have to kind of realize, you know, who your audience is and, and who can accept ideas and, and, um, and resources and who, who can't. But, but you still want to offer the resources because it's the right thing to do. 
Um, and so I think that um, when when a senior is really at the end, naturally at the end of their life, um, they it's a really beautiful thing that happens um, often is that they kind of purge, um, purge their the things that they held on to that were painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and they and they need to um, say things that I've heard things that I I was utterly shocked over of sweet little old ladies. And um and you would be surprised at things that they've kept in, you know, the majority of their life. Mm-hmm. And they don't um they need to have they need to have that option and, and that availability to say things. And literally sometimes just being an ear and, and and I'm not talking an hour long conversation. I'm talking, you know, a five, 10 minute conversation when someone tells you like the worst thing that's ever happened to them and you're, you let them talk and, or they're saying things that they want a message. You know, they, they want to tell their kids who can't be there. And mm-hmm. um, this is what I want to, I want them to know. And, um, you know, this is my message to them. And so you also get to become a story keeper um, and what an honor to be able to pass on somebody's wishes or thoughts or um, emotions uh, and and experiences uh, to their loved ones, um, it's it's the most it's the most amazing opportunity and feeling to be able to uh, talk to an adult child and um, say you know what their parent shared with you. Yeah. Um, so there's, I mean I. You know, I'm not afraid of those conversations because I've had a, a lot of them, and I and actually now I'm really drawn towards them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's I think that um, the different generations have different ways of of uh, emoting that. Nice, nice. Well, the 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 thing that I'm taking away from our conversation so far is that the end of life stage of life has the ability to have dignity, honor, and respect. And as a responder, we can show up and provide peace comfort and ease in that environment there. And I think that is that is an incredibly important message to take home. And we can do better as emergency services providers when we recognize those opportunities. So uh, we mentioned resources. So how about uh, we just share a little bit about how we learn more about what it is that we can do as far as training is concerned, how we get a hold of you two, and uh, just a message to take home with our audience. My goodness, Kathleen, how do you get a hold of us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, the Gentle Passage Doula Collective has a website. You can uh, get a hold of us there. We also are on LinkedIn. And uh, and so we offer trainings, talks, and support to the community. We also offer death cafes once a month virtually. And they're head held around the world. And that's a place where if you feel like you're holding something and you don't have any place to go, they're free, there's no agenda, and it's a place to come and talk about death and dying. And I'm going to tell you, it's mostly healthcare people that have come and talked about through COVID, talked about their experiences and, and what they're shouldering. And it's been a place of beautiful support. It's been a place where I go and cry a lot. And then we also, there's three of us that offer a similar program like this, 
um, on Win Win Women um, Network, and it's called A Different Kind of Doula, and we take different topics, and they're 30 minutes long, and people can go to that and listen to a particular topic that you might find helpful, and it might help equip you with some of the learning and understanding of end-of-life doula and their role, but also um, some of these conversation starters, and maybe to help work through our own internal process of being able to talk about death and dying. In the perfect world, um, I honestly think that they need to offer death. I would love to see offer a death doula training at the National Fire Academy, where, um, where you know somebody, you can you know assign somebody from your department to go for training, who will then train your department and really um, spread it out because you guys are constantly responding to death, um, and you're always taking care of your brothers and sisters. So I think that, um, I just think that training uh, is going to be really beneficial for emergency yes. services. Yeah, no, one of the the hallmarks of what we intend to achieve through our coaching uh, movement is that proactive approach. And proactively training our new firefighters as they're coming in through the academy on the challenges that they could face, proactively giving those tools to our fire companies, to our company officers, so that they can guide those conversations in those in those moments to create that best outcome possible. And there's, there's so many aspects of what we do as first responders that when we walk away from that interaction, we think it's just my job. It's just what we do. I, you know, there's so many times where someone will come back to me later and said, you know, you held my hand or you told me that you were, you know, that you would be there no matter what. Uh, just those, those little interactions that we have with the community that are seemingly insignificant to us, but are absolutely everything to those that we provide that care to. And so this is just one more a tool that we can use, that we can leave that positive interaction and allow those individuals that we come in contact with in this emergency services world to walk away having a, you know, a really, really positive interaction with this environment. So uh, I cannot thank you ladies enough for your time coming out and chatting with me and talking about this. It's, it's, it's a difficult concept and a difficult thing to talk about sometimes. And especially depending on how you frame what happens when you know you run off your last uh, heartbeat and then something happens and you know we're all going to experience that at some point but the way in which we experience that especially in the confines of how we've organized our medical system and the way that we look at things i think there's there's a lot of room for us to grow as an industry and as emergency providers as it relates to that so i thank you so much for what you're doing for those out in the community and for jumping on this podcast. And hopefully this will give somebody out there an additional incentive to spend that extra minute, to, to, to hold that person's hand, to, to ask what they can do within their control to be able to make that transition in life um, as, as you know, that dignity, honor, and respect as much as possible. So thank you ladies so very much. Absolutely. We are both open and available for our conversations if anybody wants to reach out to us. That sounds amazing. We'll be sure Thank to you. include your information in our podcast. And that wraps up another episode of the Resilient Responder Podcast. Thank you all very much for your time. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks.
Coaching is here now for all first responders and their families. When it comes to the job and the stresses that come with it, we at First Responder Coaching know exactly how it can affect every aspect of your life and the lives of those around you. That's because we are first responders and their families. First responders are well-versed in reacting to a situation. It is literally what we do as firefighters, law enforcement, dispatch, and EMS personnel. When trauma enters our lives, we react to it by tucking it down away somewhere in our minds, but we carry it with us and never really goes away. We need to stop carrying trauma into every aspect of our personal and professional lives. It's time to start having proactive, powerful conversations right now to gain a better balance in the responders' whole life. This is true for their families, especially the spouses. Take that first step in making some of the most important improvements in your life. Visit www.1strespondercoaching.org now to make an appointment to chat with FRC. A coach will reach out, and before you know it, you'll be on your way to living a proactively fit lifestyle.